number of years ago, a number of years ago, there was a meeting of a number of uh, great rabbis. They were sitting around, and the topic that they were discussing was Jewish education, and they were talking about um, some of the people that were responsible for great contributions to Jewish education. And different candidates were proposed as to who did the most, who was the greatest rabbi, who was the greatest Jewish educator. There was one, one of the, the rabbis at the meeting said, I, I propose a certain candidate that when I say this candidate's name, you will all agree with me immediately that this is the person that did the most for, for Torah, for Jewish education in the past 150 years. Who could be the great sage who in the past 150 years did the most for Jewish education, for furtherance of Torah education? Who is this person? So he says, and you all have to agree with me, Sarashnir. Moment of silence, and everybody said, yeah, you're right. Sarashnir. If not for her, Torah would be forgotten amongst the Jewish people to a large extent as I'll show you why the Gemara we've, we've learned about him we've had him in a number of places what it teaches us though is that not necessarily you have to be the greatest sage to make a tremendous contribution I mean most people think oh Sarah Schneer she was an innovator and she was a this we'll see today that she wasn't necessarily the what they try to make her out to be this, this great revolutionizer woman suffragist, or whatever you want to call her, woman's rights, that's not what she was all about. When you realize the, the era that she was living in and what the problems were, one could see what her, what her great contribution was and how necessary it was, but she didn't have to be a revolutionary individual in order that, that um, she wasn't just a woman suffragist. You know, we had, we had in the Gemara one of the Kohanim Gedolim of the second base of English that the Gemara refers to, Gemara Numa, is Yoshua ben Gamla. Yoshua ben Gamla is used as an example of a uh, Kohen Gadol whose office was purchased, actually by his wife. His wife Martha was a very wealthy individual, and she and she bribed Yanai Hamelach with a sack of gold dinners that her husband should become Kohen Gadol. Wasn't that the one who instituted public education? So Yeshua ben Gamla is, is, an, is an example of a Kohen God that the Gemara refers to as being the person who's uh, maybe not the most worthiest candidate, but he was a Kohen God nonetheless and was bought. You know, we, we tend to think of such a person as being, uh, whatever, a low life. Yet the Gemara, I mean, he obviously wasn't the most worthy candidate and the greatest individual or the greatest sage. Yet the Gemara says that uh, we owe Yeshua ben Gamla a debt of gratitude. He was the greatest contributor to Jewish education, the Gemara says. If not for Yeshua ben Gamla, Torah would be forgotten amongst the Jewish people. He's the one that instituted public education. Tells us a lot about, first of all, figures in the Gemara that when they become only one-dimensional and you only see them by their warts, you tend to create a uh, backdrop uh, of, of something else, whether it's Tafel HaMelech, if you're only familiar with some of the stories, right, Miles? 
And all of a sudden you get a whole new view of the person when you start seeing much more about them. You have one Gemara that Yeshua ben Gamla is this kind of an individual, and then another Gemara that seems to portray him in this different one. I mean, obviously the two are not contradictory. He could be the person that we owe an eternal debt of gratitude for what he's done for the Jewish people. And later on the Gemara also refers to some other things that he contributed to the base of Migdash. He was obviously a great person. He's a great person. We owe him a debt of gratitude. Yet he got his office by way of bribery. That's the problem this year you gave us about how the Egyptians said they get the credit for Torah and the... Uh, the yeah, the Goyim, yeah. yeah. <coughs> the Romans and the Persians. But so very often, you know, you have a mixed, you have, you have a mixed bag of individuals. There's a lot of depth to their character and to what they did. They're not just merely one or two-dimensional beings. And, and it's, it's, it's good to, um, you know, they try to resurrect Sarah Schneer into being this, uh, this uh, woman's advocacy type when she certainly wasn't. The, in a way, there's a certain precedent to all of this. This week's Parsha, we find page 173 Four lines from the bottom. Umoshe Olo Elo Elohim. Moshe went up to um, God. Vayikrei Love and Hashem told him. Now you have to remember that this is really the first, the first statement that God said to introduce the Jewish people to this momentous event that they're about to witness, which is Kabbalah Satara. I mean, this is the, the pinnacle. This is the peak of of Jewish history in a sense. This is where it all begins. And the first statement by which God introduces the the fact that they're going to receive the Torah of Hashem in our and Hashem spoke to him from the mountain, called him Lamar and he said to him, Ko Somar Yisrael. So shall you say to the house of Jacob, so shall you speak to the children of Israel. And it goes on, Atem Risem, and it introduces the fact that you witnessed all these miracles, and now I'm ready to make a covenant in order that the Jewish people should become the chosen, the treasure from amongst all the nations of the world. You'll be a Mamlechas Kawanim, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. In other words, let's make a covenant, I'll give you the Torah. This is an eternal covenant where forever you will be deemed the chosen people. And it's introduced, the very first words are Kol Somar Leves Yaakov Of course, this is repetitious. So shall you say to the house of Jacob, so shall you say to the children of Israel. So Chazal comment on that. First, let's take a look at Rashi, and then I'll show you the original sources on all of this. Of course, the word Beis Yaakov, this is where it comes from. Right? Kol Somar Yaakov, and to this day we refer to girls' schools as Beis Yaakov's. It says Rashi in the top line of the second column, Ko Somar, so shall you say, Beloshen Hazeh Ukiseder Hazeh. Use the words that I say and use the order that I say. In other words, keep the order the same. Lebeis Yaakov Elu HaNoshim. Beis Yaakov refers to the women. The women are referred to as Beis Yaakov, the house of Jacob. Again, I'm not going to mince words over here, so I'm going to tell it like it is. 
and you'll have to take the hap with the cold. Generally, and we find that even in this context, uh, those that don't say it's necessarily referring to women, whenever you refer to Yaakov, Malvin points it out over here as well, Yaakov is usually the name to refer to the lower class Jews. Yisrael is a term used to refer to the more elite. And therefore, Kosomar Leves Yaakov is to the masses in general, Sagei Levnei Yisrael would be the, the elite. In this context, it's used to refer to women and men. So, do with it whatever you want, but that's just the way it happens to be. Rashi therefore says, Eilu HaNoshim, Beis Yaakov is Eilu HaNoshim, and the word Somar, as opposed to the word Sageid, is Tomar Lohen Beloshin Raka, to speak to them softly, to speak to them more gently. Tageid Livnei Yisrael, and the words Tageid is similar to the word Hagoda. But Haggadah in this sense is, as Rashi says, Oinshin v'dikdukin, tell them the details, tell them the harsh penalties, the severities of the mitzvahs, v'dikdukin, all of the minutia, perishless harm, that you should tell the males. Devarim hakoshin kegidin, things that are tough, like gidin, like sinews, in other words, toughest sinews, the word sageid is related then to the word gid, gid is a sinew. Somar is always a a gentler way of speaking, and sageid is a harsher way of speaking from the word gid. To the women speak gently, to the men speak harshly. So it introduces the difference between how to approach men and women in something as basic as receiving of the Torah, that you should do it, and, and the, the Pasuk begins, Kosomar, be careful in the way it's done, do it this way as I tell you. What's interesting, of course, is the order. That in this case, the order is women before the men. Notice, though, that they were separate. I, I always say that this is an example. First example of, in terms of education, is the first lesson is that it shouldn't be co-ed. First lesson is that it's not co-ed. Oh. The Mechilta, let's take a look at the Mechilta. This is the source of Rashi. The Mechilta is on the top right. And in the words of the Mechilta, the Mechilta says as follows, Kosomar leves Yaakov, Elu Hanoshim, Vesagei Levnei Yisrael, Elu Anoshim. The women are referred to as Beis Yaakov, men are referred to as Bnei Yisrael. And again, do with it what you want. The fact that one is Yaakov and one is Yisrael usually has the connotation of more elite, more educated, more whatever, superior. And uh, the masses... The house is the wife, that, that's the base part. But the fact that it's called base Yaakov as opposed to base Yisrael. But you, we're going to talk about the base part versus the B'nai. That's correct. The, the Mechilta continues, Kosomar base Yaakov, speak to the women Belosh and Raka in gentler, softer terms. But the Mechilta adds one more very important aspect to it. And more Roshay Devarim. Speak to them in more generalities. Headings. In other words, not details. Sagei Levnei Yisrael v'tidaktek imohem. And with them be more specific. Go into the details. So the Mechilta points out both aspects. Loshen Raka to women. Roshay Devarim to women. To men. V'sagei. It's harsher talk. Utidaktik imohem and tell them the minutia, 
tell them the details, tell them the specifics. In other words, again, we see that the curriculum and the way of teaching men and women is different. In the first place, we see that men and women are separated, not co-educated. Somar Levesi Yaakov is one Dibur, one Amira, one speech, one lesson, one shear given to the Beis Yaakov, to the women. Sagei Levnei Yisrael, a separate lesson, a separate message for the men. The men and the women were separated. They were separate, as we will see shortly from the Pirkei de Rabbeliezer as well, that says that they were separated. Obviously, there was no co-education. But in addition to that, the actual curricula and the way it's done and the way it's delivered is also different. The curriculum is different and the manner of delivery is different. Mechilta says both things. Speak to them a different delivery. To the women, it should be gentle, Loshon Raka, softer. The men is Visageid, as Rashi pointed out, it's harsher, it's tougher. You speak more difficultly, more severely, more harshly, harder with the men. The details, likewise, there's a difference between men and women. To the women, you speak in generalities, Roshay Dvorim, headings, generalities. To the men, you tell them the details, you tell them more than just the broad outline, the principles that you tell the women, but rather you tell them the minutiae, the details and the specifics. Different curricula, different ways of delivery. The purpose for the women is to teach them in ways that they become inspired, they become inspired and feel good about Yiddishkeit. You teach them the generalities without having to go into all of the details and the minutiae, and you make them feel good, you make them inspired. To the men, you tell them the details, you tell them the harshness and the punishments and all of the specifics, and you talk tough. Let's take a look now at the Medish Rabbah that also discusses this and adds another layer of meaning to all the above. This is to the women, of course. Again, the same idea as the Mechilter, the generalities, the broad outline. Here the Medish uses a slightly different expression. Seemingly, what the Medish means to say is speak to them in a broader outline and generalities and don't give them the details and the specifics because this is what, the, what they're capable of comprehending. This is in their nature. They could more easily and readily comprehend the outlines and the generalities, the principles, the broad outline. This is all they're capable of understanding. The details and the specifics according to their capacity to speak, to understand rather. In other words, speak to the women on their level according to their capacity of comprehension. Speak to the men on their level of comprehension according to their capacity. Seemingly, the Medrash is saying that men and women have different capacities of comprehension and levels of understanding and therefore you have to teach accordingly. You have to teach women according to their level of comprehension, according to their capacity to understand, and men according to their level of understanding and their capacity to understand. But apparently men and women have different levels of comprehension and different abilities in terms of, of understanding and learning. That's what would be the simple understanding of this medrash, although one could say slightly different and interpret it slightly differently. In any case, that's what it would seem from the medrash, that men and women are different, in terms of their learning abilities. Now the Medrash deals with a very interesting question. The question is, why is it that the women were approached before the men? 
It's one thing we've explained already that men and women are different and they should be approached differently. But why the women first? Maybe the men should be first and the women second. After all, one would think, according to this, that women are secondary and the men are primary. Why are the women the approached first? Says the Medrash the following. Why is it that the women were approached first? So the Medrash gives three different reasons. Two of them seemingly in praise of women. One of them perhaps not in such praise, as we'll see. Depends how you interpret it. One answer is given is Women are generally more enthusiastic. They generally respond faster and with greater levels of enthusiasm and zrizus to mitzvahs. Women are more mizdaris and more zrizuzdig in mitzvah performance, therefore they were approached first. They'll encourage more, they'll do things more, they'll do things better. I should point out that I did see a pshat on this, although one can certainly take issue with it, that generally sp uh, speaking, people that are on a lower level tend to be more enthusiastic than the people that are more elitist and intellectual and sophisticated. Again, it's something that I saw, one could certainly take issue with it. A second pshat. In order that women should bring the children to Torah. After all, they're the ones responsible for maintaining the home. They're called Beis Yaakov. For that reason, women are called Ishtos Ubeso. We learned that the Gemara, it's the Mishnah, the first Mishnah in Sechtes Yuma. And it's a Gemara in Shabbos as well. That Rabbi Yaisi called his wife Beso rather than Ishto. She's the mainstay of the home. She's the one that raises the children and educates them in the beginning and she brings them to school as the mission at the end of Mesechtas Kedushin implies that the women were the ones that brought the children to learn Torah. Therefore, for the purpose of continuity and transmission for future generations, it was important to come to the women first. They were the supporters and the enablers of Torah. And as we will learn, the women are generally called the enablers of the Torah system. For that reason, they're also approached first. A third answer is given. The first command given to man was only given to the man, and Chava was commanded later. And this resulted in a catastrophe. Because women were commanded later, and men were commanded first, and women were commanded later, it caused the downfall of man for all of human history. Because she caused Adam to sin. Achshav, if I repeat this procedure again, if I don't first speak to the women, they will not accept the Torah, and their bittel Torah will cause the men and the whole Torah will be forgotten. Now, I don't want to repeat the same process as in the original creation of the world. Over there we see things got messed up. I don't want to do it like that where it gets messed up again the same way. This way I'm going to reverse the process, get the woman first, and this way we can safely and securely feel that the Torah is going to be transmitted and it's going to be kept. Otherwise the Torah is going to be nullified. Okay, let's take a look now at the Pirkei Rebel Yezer. Again, each piece adds a new, a new layer. It says the Pirkei Rebel Yezer, Rav Pinchas Oymer Erev Shabbos Omdu Yisrael Bahar Sinai it was Friday when the Jews were at Har Sinai. Again, this is what I always point out, that it's a given that there's no such thing as co-education. The men were separate, the women were separate. 
I mean, obviously, there's not going to be co-education because even the curriculum is supposed to be different. The Kosomar Levais Yaakov and the Sagei Levnei Yisrael tells us that the curriculum of the material is supposed to be done in a different way, different material. You're supposed to learn different things and it's supposed to be taught in a different way. So obviously you have a different curriculum. I'm saying that nowadays there's a tendency among some schools that there has to be co-education to equalize things. And even those that are trying to play, you know, straddle both sides of the fence, say, well, we have separate classes because for obvious reasons it's not good to have boys and girls learning together. But we make sure that they have the same curriculum. We see both things not over here. But the first step, of course, is that, that the men and the women were separate. First speak to the daughters of Israel, to the women. To get them to accept the Torah. Because this is the way of men. Men tend to be easily led by the minds of women. And if the wives are going to be a certain way, then it will draw their husbands and we're going to have a disaster in terms of Kabbalah Satara. Therefore, we got to get the women first in order that the men shall follow then as well. Now, let's turn the page. Let's turn the page and look at that piece on the right. It's an excerpt from a piece from the Ridvaz. Um, for those of you that learned Shkolon recently, Maybe you'll have noticed that in the Yerushalmi, one of the major commentaries in the Yerushalmi is the Ridvaz, the Yerushalmi general. The Ridvaz was a um, Rav who became a Rav in, in Chicago, the early part of the centuries, I, it's been like around the teens and the 20s, or the 20s rather, and he ultimately fled to Eretz Yisrael when he tried fixing up Kashrus, and in those days he couldn't fix up Kashrus, it was run by the Mafia. And um, he ran off to uh, Eretz Yisrael, he was, his life was threatened, he was in danger, and he had to like, leave the country, and... Um, what country was it? Chicago. <laughs> Al Capone country. Okay. Al Capone. His house and all of his manuscripts and writings were burnt down the next day, when they uh, lit a fire to his house, and he lost many manuscripts in that. You heard the famous Chicago Fire. <laughs> okay. That's what started. So that was the Ridvaz. He would, he would speak in shul about the, the kashras. Now, I can't verify this part of the story. Uh, and as you'll see, that maybe this part of the story is not... Uh, it's, it's apocryphal. He, after he left Chicago, he placed a uh, curse on it, saying that nothing good will come out of Chicago, no great things, uh, Torah, will come out of Chicago for X amount of years. Of course, that lasted until 1964 when Tulsi Shiva came to Chicago. Ah. But uh, again, I don't know this part. I remember when I was in Chicago, that's the postscript to the story that I heard that he placed the curse in Chicago. The truth is, for many years, Chicago was a tough town. You, you couldn't get anything done over there in terms of, you know, there was such an opposition to any kind of advancement of the Torah, of Yiddishkeit. And, and yeah, in many places. But Batalzi Shiv fought an uphill battle in Chicago, and uh, maybe they attributed to the curse that he placed till that time, till Tells came to Chicago. What Again. Full name? So Paro, in response to Moshe, who said that we were going to take everybody with us out of Egypt after the Makas Borod says 
What do you think? I'm going to send you and the children. But don't you see that that evil is about to befall you? You can't take the kids. The kids are going to be um, are going to be in danger in harm's way. And Moshe uh, then power continues. Lo chain, not so. Let only the men go. And let them serve God. Because they are the ones that you actually seek. You want to serve Hashem. So who do you need? You just need the men. What do you need the everybody else? Leave the children behind. Now there's a glaring omission over here. The women. On the one hand, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying we want to take everybody, men, women, and children. Paro is saying, no, you think I'm going to send the kids? You can't send the kids. It's dangerous. Kids can't go. All you need is the men. Take the men. What about the women? I mean, not children, only take the men. What about the women? Where do the women go? Paro certainly understood what most people nowadays don't seem to understand. It's a chiddish. That um, where the children are is usually where the mothers are. I mean, where the women are is going to be where the children are. Uh, one second, we'll see now what the Ridva says. Again, this is a person that wrote this in the early part of this century. He didn't want to send the children, Paro. He said, you can't take the children out to the wilderness. He was willing to send the men, as he said, What about the women? He says like this, The Meshech called Kufas Hamakris Ad Achshav Throughout all of the plagues, Paro Sir of the Shachras B'nei Yisrael, Paro was stubbornly refusing to let the Jews go, even for three days. Why was Paro so stubborn with all the plagues? Three days, I mean, a three-day leave of absence. How could, how terrible could that be to the economy of Egypt? But Paro understood the problem. He understood the problem is, that if the Jews go and have this three-day holiday, of worshiping God and becoming spiritually connected to God, they're going to come back to Egypt and they're going to be changed and different people. As a result of going to serve Hashem, Yashuvu v'yitaru mishikutse mitzrayim, they will come back and they will leave the the uh, idolatry and the abominations and the promiscuity of Egypt. And Paro himself understood that if that happens, he loses it all. Paro wanted the Jews to remain very much attached and glued to the abominations of Egyptian society and Egyptian culture. He wanted to lull them constantly into the, whether it's the theaters or, he wanted Egyptian culture to be what the Jews wanted the most. And as a result, he was able to keep them there and he kept them enslaved, however he kept them enslaved. But one thing he knew that if the Jews come back after three days of serving Hashem and all of a sudden they become these elevated, spiritualized people, then he's lost it all. And therefore Paro was always reluctant and he was always stubbornly refusing to let the Jews go, even for three days. Rak Ato, but now Achamakas Borda Shekovdol of Biyaser, Biyatsu Avodov now when he felt forced and compelled to give in 
he at least came up with the following strategy. He still had the following strategy. Let them go. They'll get on the high. They'll come back feeling all enthusiastic and everything else. But in order that this shouldn't affect a permanent change, that the avoidus Hashem Hashem that the service of Hashem should not affect them on a permanent basis to cause them to do a, a, a an eternal tshuva. He figured out a scheme to make sure that the women don't go. Because obviously, if the children don't go, the mothers are needed to take care of the children. So therefore, by saying, I can't send the children, you could all go except for the children. He knew with that, the women are going to have to stay at home. Because what else are women going to do? Paro understood that mothers always are with children. And therefore, he felt that if I could keep the children home, I automatically have the women. Once I have the women, whatever changes the men are going to make are only going to be of a temporary nature and will not last. Even if the men go to serve Hashem, and through this, they'll want to be changed individuals. By the time they get back, when they get back to Egypt, when three days are over, the women that stayed behind in Egypt, they'll, they'll overturn whatever religious feelings were in their home, and they'll corrupt and ruin the household. As we've just seen from the Pirkei de Rabbeliezer, and the Medrash Rabbah, the men go the way the women go. If the women aren't willing to accept the Torah, it's inevitable, it's only a question of time, till the men become corrupted as well. One of the successes of, of organizations like Arachim, that have these, these seminars in Israel, where they, take, where they take people and in five days they revolutionize their lives, and they have these seminars very intense, similar to what the discovery seminars are like. But it's much more all-encompassing because you go there and you live there, you eat there, you sleep there, you live there. It's a 24-hour-a-day thing. And they deal with all of the issues from a scientific basis, you know, the, the history, the, all the different things. Arachim is very, very scientific, very sophisticated. And they give you an intense... An intense uh, study, but it's a, a but the air is permeated with their with their spirit. 24 hours a day, men, women, husbands, and wives, and you live there for five days. Their success rate is phenomenal. Was after five days of being in one of these intense seminars, people literally change their lives. They become changed people for the rest of their lives, which is very you know when you think about it. Because people, even after they're inspired, after a week or two weeks. The inspiration wears off, and when the inspiration wears off, it all goes down the tubes. Yeah, you heard it, it's good, huh? but you're back to where you began. You can't bring yourself to change. One of the keys to the success of an Arachim is precisely that they will only do it with husbands and wives. If they're going to take one spouse and inspire him and bring him up and elevate him and everything else, by the time he gets home, even though he knows it, and there's no way that his wife or the other spouse is going to be able to talk them out of it. 
but it wears you down. With time, it wears you down, and inevitably the, the effects of it are short-lived. Amway has the same approach. What? Amway has the same approach. Amway has the same approach. I mean, uh, uh, all these timeshare places have the same approach, that they want you to come down with your spouse. They need the two of you. They can't just convince one spouse and not the other because ultimately it'll fall apart. Especially when you're talking about life-changing uh, things. When you want to change a life. So is it just contrary to our uh, perception of how the women were in Mitzrayim? That they were Noshim Sitkonios. That's correct. When they were, uh, Noshim were Sitkonios in Mitzrayim. This is just Paro's strategy. It, it didn't happen anyway. But Paro's thought was, because the question was that we began with is, why not let them go for three days? What's the big deal with three days? Paro understood that even three days can, of a Arachim seminar with God and with Moshe Rabbeinu could change a person's whole life. And he comes back to Egypt, a changed individual. He's a slave, but he's no longer a slave. He's no longer free. Paro knew that if he keeps the spouse at home and they don't go through this process of change, then he still has them because they'll eventually fall back to their old, uh, to their old things. He knew the effects of what they refer to as feminine wiles. But that's what really the Medrash Rabbah is saying. That's what the Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer is saying. In the words of the Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, Shedarkom shal anoshim holchem achar daiton shal noshim. Or the Medrash Rabbah says it in a much more, uh, you know, uh, no holds barred. That's right. That says, Chava over of the Kilkalas Olam That's really what the Ridvaz is saying. The Torah will be forgotten. Whatever they could have gained in three days is gonna fall by the wayside once they come back to Egypt, back to society, and their wives weren't there with them. So Paro understood the importance of having the women. Hashem is saying, Kol Somar Yaakov, it's important to have the women on on deck first in order that the Torah should have a cue. Now, he takes this, though, in the last paragraph, and this is very important, to understand the, the Beis Yaakov movement. Mizima kloikela zu, hi asher omda b'oichrei hadayrus v'achroinen b'Europa. This was the, the downfall of the latest, of the last generations in Europe. In other words, the reason why, most people aren't aware of how what danger was the the Jews in Europe? I mean, we think of World War II and, uh, and a shtetl life that was very idealized by by uh, a lot of the writers and commentators. And yes, it's true to a certain extent the shtetl life was was something. But people don't realize to what degree, to what extent, the um, the effects of of European culture invaded and pervaded the Jewish home and what danger there was there was this kind of rat and corruption that was seeping into the Jewish home that even the people in the frumest homes that people were from and everything else there was a certain rat that was gnawing away and it was almost like termites in the house it still looks good but there was a rat beneath it and he's describing the root cause of all of this decline and corruption in the Jewish home was the following Jewish boys were sent off to school. Jewish boys went to yeshivas, they went to chadorim, they went to yeshivas, and they became Talmud Chacham, and they would stay in yeshivas for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, you know, the, the famous legendary Altamir, 
who would be learning as a bachar till age 40 before he would even get married. And he was receiving these educations. The Naisru Yireim Ushleim, they were from a people, Talmidei Chacham. The Ilu Hanoshim. But because there was no form, formal Jewish education, and no one seemed to, to care about what to do with the women, that there was just lack of concern to, to, have, to have schools for Jewish women. Jewish girls wound up going either to gymnasia, which of course is the equivalent of our high school, maybe a little bit more, or to schools that were run by non-religious Jews that were trying to educate them secularly or in a modern way. And therefore they lost, they lost their faith and they gave up Judaism. This not only affected the Jewish women, their brothers, and their husbands, and their children. Through this entire communities were lost to the Jewish people, were uprooted and destroyed. Because as much as you're going to do for the benefit of of education of the children, if it's for only the boys, if you don't equally worry about the Jewish education of women, you didn't help any. I have to, I mean, it's hard to paint for you a picture of what Jewish life was like. But let me just tell you a few points. Jewish boys went to yeshivas and they became yeshiva bacham. When it came time for them to look for shaducha to get married, they didn't have Beis Yaakov girls to go uh, marry. They had to go take what's available on the market. And what was available were girls that were steeped in European culture, either because they went to, to schools, to gymnasia, or to other things. And as a result, there was a lack of communication and a lack of, of, of coming together on any of these issues. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you've heard all of you have heard, uh, I'm not going to go into any kind of details on this, but uh, families of the biggest gedolim and Talmidei Chacham in, in the last generation where, where they say, well, the wife didn't cover her hair, right? You see pictures. Or the women were wearing short sleeves or low-cut dresses by the Choshevs, the families. The greatest Rebetzins, people have, they're only Rebetzin in name. They didn't cover their hair. They had uh, short hair sleeves. In America, here in America, yeah. I mean, it was in Europe also. The same thing was in Europe. So everybody says, oh, so you see, it was good enough for them. Why are we so from today? It wasn't good enough for them. They had no choice. These husbands, when they were yeshivalite and they were going to yeshivas and everything else, they had to get married. And this is what was available. What was available was these women. In fact, it was a known thing that when the yeshiva went to date a girl, even from the choshevs to families, it was accepted and standard procedure that you had to shake hands with a girl when you came to the door. I mean, nowadays, who even heard of such a thing? That uh, from a yeshiva goes out with a girl, you have to shake. I mean, you automatically reject her. Any girl that would be like that, you'd, you'd automatically uh, reject such a girl. I mean, but in those days, that's, that's what it was. What it was is that you had to shake hands and go out, and she was cultured, and there was a lack of communication. She knew that she had to marry a Jewish boy, and this is what she, she married, but she lived her own lifestyle. I mean, I, I'm not going to say now exactly who 
but from the Choshev's families in the, in in the Torah Jewry, when I will say when when Reb Chaim Brisker's son Reb Moshe Salvechik was getting married, and um, again, how much of the story was, is you know revisionist or not? I can't I can't vouch for. But apparently, he, Reb Chaim Brisker was against the prospective mate of his uh, of his son of Moshe Salvechik because she was educated. And supposedly, either he said or others said that uh, you'll see the effects of it in the children. We all know who the children are. We're not going to go that far. We're not going to get that explicit. But uh, she went to gymnasium, secular education. What? Which book is this? The one that the daughters wrote. The one that the daughters wrote. Yeah. I mean, Ramesh Salvechik's wife was was an educated person. And there's no question that you see the effects of it. Wh- whether you hold of the changes and the effects, that's I'm not even going to go into. But I mean, obviously the Briskorov and, and that branch of the family in Israel came out differently than the branch in, in America. And to a great extent, it's all because of what the Ridvaz is saying over here. It's the woman. You could have the greatest family of Chaim Briskor, Moshe Salvechik, a tremendous Talmud Chacham. But who you marry and what kind of woman and what her background is and what her Jewish education was and her feelings will directly affect your home and it certainly affects the children. And if not the children, then the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren, but you're going to see the effect. And uh, again, for good or... Uh, however, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave it up to, to you to decide whether it's good or bad or whatever the case may be. But there's no question that that is the effect. And this is the war no botei chinuch the Beis Yaakov movement, as I said earlier, the one that contributed the most to Jewish education was Sar Shneer. Because without it, this is exactly the way it looked. The way Europe looked was that Bochum went to Yeshiva to learn, they were Talmudei Chachomim, they were Goinim, Gedoylim, whatever the case may be, but the wives wouldn't cover their hair, they wouldn't, they wouldn't wear sneeze the good clothes, and these are just superficial and, and external indications of, of whatever else was there and how it affected the homes and he says again I don't know all that, that the Ridvaz knows I mean he's speaking in the 1920s or maybe earlier but he's saying that entire communities in Europe were lost and destroyed and uprooted because of the fact that the women were not given a, uh, a proper Jewish education and once the women weren't they, it affected the husbands it affected their brothers it affected their children and whole communities were wiped out on account of this this is the major cause he says of the calamity I'm talking about the spiritual calamity the Holocaust was only the was the last act of this but the spiritual Holocaust of the calamity of what happened in Europe was all on account of the fact that there was no proper Jewish education for the girls there were so many tremendous uh, communities in, in Europe I mean. I, Again, you I'm see, not I'm, 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 we're not going to... Why, was, fine, I'm not why gonna, did this happen? Why was there a barrier uh, against... So the question is, so why didn't Jewish women and Jewish girls have education? I mean, as we see, we see therefore... So, we, so far we've already seen two things. Number one, we've seen that there's going to be a difference of how <coughs> to educate Jewish women. We see, but we also see that the women were approached first because of the importance that they have in terms of affecting the future of the Jewish people. Now, why didn't Jewish women actually have have an education? 
What's also very telling is the expression that we use for Jewish girls' schools, which is Beis Yaakov. Miles earlier pointed out, based on the Gemara and Shabbos, that those of you that remember from the Dafyomi, that Rabbi Yossi always referred to his wife, Ishto Zubeso. We had it over here in Yum also, right? Lechiper Bado Beso, Beso Zu Ishto. Right? So we had it in the Gemara and Yuma, for those that remember, and we had it in the Gemara and Shabbos. How Yossi referred to his wife as, he said, I never called my wife Ishti, I always referred to her as Beisi, my house. So to a certain extent, to a certain extent, the reason why a woman is called Beso, so the Torah itself refers to the Kohen's wife, the Kohen Godel's wife, as as his household. Because the woman is the household, she's the mainstay of the home. As we were pointing out earlier, where the children are, where the home is, that's where the woman is. The woman is the home. Calling a school there for Beis Yaakov is, is a very perceptive and insightful title. But it also, you have to also understand, we said earlier that Yeshua ben Gamla is the one that revolutionized Jewish education by making mandatory public education for Jewish children a fact of Jewish life. So what happened before? I mean, Yeshua ben Gamla is the one that had to innovate this? What happened before? The fact is, let's take a look now at a beautiful vort, it's on the left, from Mayor Shapiro. Mayor Shapiro, as you all know, is the founder of the Dafyomi movement, and he was also the head of the Yeshiva in Lublin. Lublin was a was a crown jewel amongst the Yeshivas. It was beautiful, and Mayor Shapiro was a phenomenal order and a darshan, and he's the one that innovated the whole Dafyomi movement that we have to this day. Ten cycles of Dafyomi. It all began with Mayor Shapiro. He says now a very interesting shot that addresses your question. As we said, Kosomar that's the Noshim. So he asks over here, Madua Earlier we mentioned the difference between Yisrael versus Yaakov. Again, do with it what you will, good, bad, or whatever. But the fact is we could have referred to them as B'nai Yisrael and B'nos Yisrael, or B'nai Yaakov and B'nos Yaakov, or if you want to make a distinction that men are given the higher title of Yisrael, women are given the lower title of Yaakov, you could have at least called it B'nai Yisrael and B'nos Yaakov, just like B'nai, B'nos. And nowadays we could Pirchei is Benos, right? We refer to it as Benos. There's, there's, it's interesting that in Muncie the school is the opposite. The boys' school is called Beis Mikra, and the girls' school is called Bas Mikra. You know, rather than Ben Mikra and Beis Mikra, it's Beis Mikra and Bas Mikra. But, but whatever. The question that Rameer Shapiro is asking is why are the women not referred to as B'nois Yaakov or B'nois Yisrael, like the men are referred to as B'nai Yisrael. So he says the following, Hizbir In the olden days, when people had congestion or sore throats or the like, those kind of, I don't know, whatever, upper respiratory ailments, there were two methods of administering medicine. 
one way was they would orally give the person to swallow medicines which were usually very bitter and very difficult to ingest and to digest taken orally in other words pills in those days were literally bitter pills it was very difficult but you would take it orally and swallow it down the throat but there were some that you couldn't get them to swallow the medicine because was bitter they had a second approach which was to breathe in to just imbibe by breathing in the vapors of some of these methods similar to a Vicks vapor rub and, and, uh, and the vaporizers so one way of administering medicine was to swallow it, and the other one was to just constantly breathe it in. L'tzayrach said, Hoyu mevim l'chedrush shalachoyla anfeyatim som balayin nichoy achorv oitin misachedr. They would have to seal the room that it should be sort of hermetically sealed. And then you'd be able to, you know, have these as part of the vapors. Ha'choyla shoyashori perikzman misuyim b'toyich achedr. This person who was sick, would spend time in that room and he would breathe in the vapors of the room this is one of the ways that they used to use the cure so one way would be to just ingest it and the other way is to breathe it in but you have to have a hermetically sealed room in order that it should be effective in the battle against the Yetzir Haram, there are also two ways to cure one of the sickness of the Yetzir Haram. Hader Choachas Himasharenu Chazal Borosi Yetzir Hara Borosi Leitaratavim, the famous Gemara and Kedushin, where the Yetzir Hara is literally compared to poison, and Torah is compared to medicine. I created the Yetzir Hara, and the Torah is the antidote. The Yetzir Hara is poison, and the Torah is the antidote, the medicine. For the Yetzirah. In other words, you view it like a medicine that you have to ingest. And therefore it's ingested orally. Torah is ingested orally. When a person learns, he's freed of the shackles of the Yetzirah. As Chazal say, true freedom is found when a person frees himself from the Yetzirah. And that's through the study of Torah. This approach this approach is very similar to the ingestion of medicine orally through the mouth because Torah study is verbal Torah study is ingested orally you learn it, it goes from mouth to ear and from ear to mouth and therefore you can compare the study of Torah as a weapon in the battle against the Yetzirah as a medicine similar to medicine that's ingested orally. This works out well for men that have the obligation and the command of the Torah, study Torah, learn Torah. You have an obligation to learn Torah. What about the fact that women don't have the obligation of studying Torah? 
comes the Torah and shows us there's another way of fighting the Yetzer, similar to the second approach used in medicines in ancient times, which is to breathe it in, to absorb it almost by osmosis. And what is that? Alam lin Women who were initially found at home, and therefore the two Pshatim of Beis Yaakov make sense. Ishtozu Beis, so the woman is the mainstay of the home, but she was also found at home. As I was just reading it from this article from George Will, I mean, throughout history, women were basically at home. And if a woman lives in a pure Jewish home, she inevitably absorbs by osmosis the purity and the holiness of the Jewish home. All she has to do is breathe it in to absorb it. They should merely have to breathe in the Lisbon and absorb into their innards the holy atmosphere and the purity of the Jewish home. That atmosphere, the air of the Jewish home, is absorbed merely by breathing it in. It comes automatically like osmosis. It's breathed in to the body of the Jewish woman. She absorbs it, the pure atmosphere and the holy air of the Jewish home. For in that way, she is able to bring the Torah into her. And therefore, the Torah, to refer to this idea, says, The way the Jewish woman absorbs the Torah, Kabbalah's Torah, is in the home. It's breathing it in, being in a hermetically sealed home that's pure and holy, that is the way that the Jewish woman will receive the Torah. Although Hashem is, is referring now to the acceptance of the Torah, to Kabbalah's Torah, and he introduces it. And we've already explained why the women, women are different than men, they have to have different curricula, they're taught differently. We've explained why they're approached first, before the men, but the Torah refers to their acceptance of the Torah. The transmission of Torah to women is referred to as Kosomar Leves Yaakov. One reason is, as Miles pointed out, and as we've said from the Gemara in Yuma and the Gemara in Shabbos, Ishtoy Zubeso, when you refer to women, you call them a house. Part of the reason is they're in the home, but also they're found in the home. But now he says the way of the absorption of Kabbalah's HaTorah for women is ideally by absorbing it in the home by breathing it in in a room where it all comes in and you breathe it in Kosomar Leves Yaakov. Yes? This is circular. The woman is creating the atmosphere. Of the One second. Okay. So now, the way Torah is transmitted and received by women is through the second method. And as Rashi already said, you tell the men the Vorm Koshim Kigidin. Right? We said it from the Medrash. You tell them the hard stuff, the bitter stuff. They have to take it and imbibe it like a bitter pill, where you take it orally. It's transmitted from mouth to ear, from ear to mouth, and it's sometimes it's a tough, bitter pill. We tried to say earlier, what does the word caution mean? Whatever it means, it's harsh, it's severe, it's detailed, it's, it's difficult, it's uh, all the meanings of caution. It's difficult, it's bitter. It's tough and it's difficult. That's the way the men take the Torah. It goes down like his comparison to the pill. The medicine goes in orally as a bitter pill. Women is the Loshen Racha. Loshen Racha, softly and gently. 
let him just breathe it in and it's going to get there anyway but then he adds another aspect to this he says this is really a circular process as Miles just points out we continue on this thought that not only the woman receive the Torah by way of breathing it in the room, the home rather than orally ingesting and chewing up on Torah in fact we find this the idea of studying Torah as being compared to eating the Pasuk says in Mishlei go eat and chew on the bread of my Torah. You know, the, there's a Yiddish expression when it refers to the, um, to, to, it's, it's a device to remember how many dafim are in Baba Kama, Baba and Baba Basra. So it's, it's off by one, but it's Kufiutes is Baba Kama, Baba Metzia are both Kufiutes, 119. And Baba Basra is Kufayin Vav, Kufayin Zayin, 176, 177. So in Yiddish, the expression is kite, kite, kes. You know, kuf yutes, kuf yutes, kes. Kite, kite, kes, which means chew, chew the cheese. <laughs> chew, chew the cheese. Torah has to be chewed on. And sometimes it can be difficult. It can be tough to chew on dvorm, koshim, kigidin, like sinews. The Torah could be as tough as sinews to chew on, to try to digest. Men take it orally. They chew on it, dvorm, koshim, kigidin, as tough as sinews to chew upon. That's the dvarm caution part, the, the hard part. The easier way is for those that can't chew on it because it's too bitter of a pill to take in orally, you could breathe in the Torah as well. Men have an obligation to learn Torah and to study Torah. Women don't. And therefore they get their Torah through absorption, indirectly, not through being without Torah. This is not only true the way they receive the Torah, this is also true the way they transmit the Torah. Not only is this their Kabbalah Satira, but Lematan Torah, the way they give over of their Torah, with their Chaim, that they give over to their children, also works the same way. How is it that women teach their children? They rock them to sleep, and they and, and the Yiddish Mama, when she would rock her baby to sleep, she would sing songs of one day you should grow up to be a tzaddik and a Talmud Chacham. And in the songs of the way a Jewish woman would, would train her, her child and she would bring him up even as a baby. She would be rocking to see, sleep with lullabies of Torah, of Kedusha, of Tzitkis, stories of tzaddikim. It would be imbibed in the children, not the form Koshim Kigidim, tough and rough and, and orally learning it. But it would be breathed in by the child that she would just view her mother. I mean, you know, I remember when I was learning Hilchas Malicha, one of the more difficult aspects in your day about salting, salting chickens and salting meat from the blood, and all the shilas the Yachreinim have, what happens if you're in the middle of salting, and, and then the uh, chicken or the meat fell into the mixture of the blood, does it reabsorb it, what do you do, this and that? I mean, how do you think Jewish women under, learn these things? They learn your day. They learned Yerodeya, they, um, we talked before about the curriculum and everything else. They, they, they learned it by absorbing it. Even the halachas, they learned by living it. They live the halachas, they absorb the halachas through life. And the way they transmitted it to their children was the same way. This is the way they learned it, this is the way they transmitted it.
And even Jewish boys, Jewish males, before they went to Yeshiva, how do they learn Torah? They learn Torah because they remember the lullabies that their mother sang for them. They remember the stories that she told them, the bedtime stories. I mean, the, the Briskarov said that it's an important thing that you should say Shema Yisrael with your child as he goes to sleep. As he goes to sleep at night, you say Shema with him. You're giving over, you're transmitting to him the elements of faith, of Jewish belief, and it stays with him his whole life. Rebelezer Silver, Rebelezer Silver, when after the, the uh, World War II, when he went into some of these monasteries to find Jewish orphan children, so he looked for Jewish children. I mean, you're talking about children that were torn away from their parents, some of them for five, six, seven years. And if they left their homes when they were two years old, three years old, four years old, and now they're ten years old, they don't even have memories of Yiddishkeit. How do you discover which orphan is Jewish or not? He would go there at night when they were going to sleep, and he would yell out, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echot, and the children that would respond, Oh, that's a Jewish child. Because that you remember. Those early memories of your youth that your mother said to you, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem Echod, you remember for life, you forget everything else. You even forget who your mother and your father were. You have very distant memories of them. Tyrant, you don't remember anything. But the Shema Yisrael, before you go to sleep, that you'll remember. That's the way Torah was transmitted. Torah was absorbed that way, and Torah was transmitted that way. It goes from generation. The women received it that way, and this is the way they taught it to their daughters, certainly, but even to their sons. The Torah that the sons got from their mothers were Torah that came by absorbed process through breathing it in the Jewish home. The Lashon Racha. This is the Lashon Racha. The Rashi Prokim. The Rashi Prokim. The headings of the paragraphs, the chapter headings, not the details, the minutia, but the chapter headings. Shema Yisrael is a chapter heading of Jewish faith and Jewish belief, right? What is Shema? No philosophy. I mean, the, listen, there's a book, I think I once gave it to you, right? With perfect faith, it goes through all the Yud Gimelikrim and all the details and all the philosophy. That's heavy-duty philosophy that you learn as an adult. It's difficult, it's tough, it's, you have to read it and orally take it in. And it's all difficult philosophy that's very hard to absorb. And it's very hard to read. Not everybody's capable. You have to be very sophisticated and you have to be very educated and then you could absorb it. But one thing's for sure. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echot contains it all. Yes. Three words should precede that. What's that? With the tribe of Hayel Malachim. Okay. Good. That's for part. For sure. Okay. I agree. Otherwise you wouldn't get the child out The of children there. all do that. Maybe you're right. Yeah. But, okay. But when you say Kel Melachnem, where does Kel Melachnem come from? Omein. Well, the first thing that you teach a child is Omein. Omein stands for Kel Melachnem. So with all the philosophy, you have a huge, thick book of philosophy that when you're later, when you grow up and you're sophisticated and you could read it, you read what the Sefer Ikram says and what the Ram says more in the Vulchem and the Kuzri and all, and, and the Mudas Vedeus of Rabsad Yagon, all of these things. This is heavy duty philosophy. Not everybody could do it. But Roshe Prokin. As the Medrash says, the Rosh Prokim, the headings of the chapters. You know what? That's Lashon Racha, that's easy to absorb, that's easy to give, but that stays with you. That's what you teach the Noshim, and that's what the Noshim teach others as well. The women learn this way, and the women teach this way. And that Jewish child, when he hears Shema Yisrael, or the Kel Melech Nemon, or the Amen, retains it for all his life, and everything's in there. In the Shema Yisrael, you have all the philosophy. In the Kel Melech Nemon, you already have 
the key and the underlying basis of all Jewish belief. That's the Roshay Prakim. That's the Lashon Racha. This is the way women receive it. This is the way women transmit it. Now you can understand also what Yeshua ben Gamal's great innovation was. Who's Yeshua ben Gamal? Great sage. He made this great innovation. So what happened before? You know what happened before? Very simple what happened before. What happened before was that Jews learned in their homes. They breathed it in. When you're older and more mature and more sophisticated and more educated, now you go off to a yeshiva and you learn as formal Jewish education. But a child? Well, Yeshua ben Gamal Institute was formal education for children. What did they have before that? Why didn't they have it before? Why wait till Yeshua ben Gamla at the end of the Second Temple period to come up with Jewish education? What happened before? Because before a child learned it at home. He got it in through this base Yaakov process. He learned with the base Yaakov. He lived Torah. He knew about salting meat. How? He saw his mother doing it. His father in the film. The basics. Everybody learned the basics. What Yeshua ben Gamal's innovation was because he saw that nobody was, was, that now already the generational decline was such that the children weren't having it. So he says, if we don't make formal Jewish education, we're going to lose the children and they'll grow up into adults that don't know anything. I, the ideal method is the old way, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't innovate in, in, in a substitute. There's no question that one of the greatest boons for mankind, at least for baby kind, if not for mankind, one of the greatest boons for baby kind is the bottle and the nipple and formula. Because without the bottle and the nipple and the formula, many, many children wouldn't have nourishment. Is it better than nursing? No. Nobody's going to say it's better than nursing. It's only a substitute and a poor one. But it's still a great innovation and it's a boon to mankind, baby kind. But, same thing, formal Jewish education is not a substitute for the Jewish home. It's not as good as the Jewish home. But in lieu of the fact that there's no Jewish home, at least have the substitute formal Jewish education. Now, when it comes to the, the education process of, of women, the ideal method always was this way. And this is the way they transmit it to their children. You know, it's in feminine gender. Because who opens up the child? It's the mother that opens it up. This is the way women taught their children so therefore, not only was women's Kabbalah Satar was kosomar leves Yaakov, not only was their learning process and accepting of the Torah, Hashem starts off by telling Moshe, kosomar leves Yaakov, women are called Beis Yaakov, that's the way they're going to receive the Torah. This is their Matan Torah, the way they give it off as well. Their Chachayim Shenoisnes Hanoshmi Yaldein, Hein Be'ikir Aidei Ho'avira Shein Mashris Be'bais, is the atmosphere that they create in the home. Is the atmosphere that they absorb in their youth, and now they recreate an atmosphere and a holy air of Torah in the house. Aviras tznius of kedusha, iras Hashem tohira, mitayich saber ponim yafos with a smile, beloshin racha, gentleness, smiling, v'noyam halichos, and a pleasant way, a pleasant demeanor, cheerfulness, smiles, cooing, singing, lullabies. This is the way you create a base Yaakov. It doesn't have to be formalized like a school. This is the natural way of doing it. This is the avir, the atmosphere of Tzniyaz, Kedusha, Yeras, Hashem, Tara, that it should be the Savior, Ponem Yofos. It should be with a cheerful demeanor, Noyam Halichos. These are the things that women are able to give over and they produce in the base Yehudi, in the, in the house of the Jew. Now he says a beautiful pshat in this in the last paragraph. We could now appreciate the following words 
that the Geras Haramban starts with, which is a Pasuk, of course, in Mishlei. Famous Pasuk, everybody knows. Shema Bani Musar Listen, my son, to the Musar of your father. Val Titosh, and do not deviate from it, do not kick aside, do not reject the Torah of your mother. So the question is, why is it that a distinction is drawn in the Pasuk between listen my son to the Torah of your father or to the Musa of your father and do not reject, do not resist the Torah of your mother why is there a Shema B'ni Musa Ravicha Shinemar L'Gabayav L'Bain Al-Titosh don't reject, don't kick away the Torah of your mother by the mother Teretz is the way he explained it it's very simple to understand the Torah that a father gives his children is given orally it's given by teaching Torah it goes from mouth to ear, as we described earlier, it's the mouth, the mouth, the, you learn Torah, kite, kite, you have to chew on it, you have to chew on Torah, luchu lachmu belachmi, go eat the bread of my Torah, Torah is learned orally, the peh, it's Torah shabal peh, Torah of the mouth, and it goes from the mouth to the ear, so you have to listen, you have to hearken, shema bini means listen, hear, and hearken, you have to do an active act, of listening to the Torah, of hearkening to the Torah, your father, who is transmitting it to you verbally. He's transmitting it by way of his mouth. You have to listen because it goes from mouth to ear. Therefore, it says, Shema b'ni Musa Because the Torah goes ben tzoyis hapeh, and it's absorbed by the ear. Therefore, it says, Shema b'ni Musa However, how does one learn from his mother? It's absorbed through the air. It's naturally absorbed by osmosis. And she creates an atmosphere of Torah. She creates an atmosphere of holiness, a kedusha, a Jewish atmosphere in the home. And you absorb it not from here. You absorb it through your entire being. And therefore, by merely being in the tent of your mother, you're automatically going to absorb it. The only way of not absorbing it is if you reject it. There you have to do an active rejection. By the Father, you have to do an active acceptance if you're passive, you won't get it. By the mother, you will passively receive it. Even if you're passive, you have to actively reject it. The avir that she creates and it permeates the home, because her atmosphere permeates the entire Jewish home, it gets absorbed into your being. And therefore, the way that you don't get it is by actively rejecting it. Passively, you will automatically accept it. Passively, you will accept it. You have to actively reject it. Shema b'ni, because the, the Musr of your father comes orally. Shema b'ni, you have to actively hear it. Val titosh, the Torah of your mother merely, don't reject it, don't resist, you will automatically receive it. With this you could now understand these two aspects of Jewish history. Before Yeshua ben Gamla came, although Torah was always learned orally, that's when a person grew up, he reached adolescence and he was ready to go off to yeshiva, to the great masters, to the great sages, he went to yeshiva. But elementary education, education of a six, seven, eight-year-old child, that didn't have it formal, because the better way is this method, in the home. Yeshua ben Gamal said, listen, I mean, it's the ideal approach, but if we're going to live with ideals, what's going to happen? We're going to have nothing. We're going to have nothing. With women, there was much more than this. Because the whole essence of the Jewish woman was this. And therefore for 2,000 years they resisted formal education for women. Because the right method of absorbing it by the women, they had no obligation of Talmud Torah anyway. 
This is the way they absorbed it. This is the way they transmitted it. This is what the goal was. And therefore, in the 20, 19th century, when all of a sudden they started seeing all these problems, there was a dilemma. But it took time, it took a generation, it took two generations. Till Sor Schneer and the Chofetz Chaim and others came around and said, you know what, we have no choice. We have to innovate the way Yeshua ben Gamla did for boys. We have to innovate for women the same way. Because yes, this is the right method. The right approach was Kosomar Leves Yaakov, the Sagei Levnei Yisrael. It should be based Yaakov and it should be absorbed. This is the natural way and the proper way. But if we're not going to do it, look what's happening in Europe. That's what the Ridvaz is pointing out. Because they didn't set up schools of Torah study for Jewish girls, it was a Chorban. It was a Chorban. It was a destruction. It was a holocaust of spirituality that resulted from not having schools for Jewish girls. Why? Because it's very simple. Because if you look very carefully what Mayor Shapiro says, you see a very simple reason why this occurred. When you have two methods of giving medicine, and a person for whatever reason has difficulty swallowing it, so you use the other method of breathing it in. But that's only going to be good if you hermetically seal the room. But if the door is going to be open, and if the window is going to be open, and if the walls are are um, are porous, and if there's holes in the wall, and there's all kinds of drafts, and there's all kinds of holes coming through the wall, and the, it's all coming in, and the door's open and the window's open, so then you can't use that approach. Then you're forced to use the less desirable approach of giving it orally. As long as the Jewish home was hermetically sealed, this method was going to work, and therefore the base Yaakov method did work. But the moment that, once you got to the 19th century, there are magazines, there are newspapers, there are books, the door is open, she's going out, she's going to gymnasia, she's going to wherever it is. Once the door is open and the windows open, and you can imagine what it's like nowadays, how do you seal a Jewish home? I mean, how can you go back to this method and not send girls to, oh, she'll get it from the home. You know what's in the home already? I'm not even talking about homes that have televisions. But there's television, there's radio, there is print media, magazines and newspapers, there's books, there's electronic media, there's internet, internet there's everything's coming through, the home is porous. There's no longer a base Yaakov. If you're not going to use the method of formal education, although it's a bitter pill and you have to stuff it down someone's throat at times, there is no, there is no hope. So that's what the Ridvaz was saying. Jewish, the level of Jewish life in Europe reached such a, a low point because girls weren't receiving formal education, but they're going to all these other places. Sure, the ideal method was base Yaakov, but you know what? Came the 19th century, didn't work. Certainly the 20th century doesn't work. When you're asking your question, why they didn't do it, because this is the ideal method. And the ideal method is the method that worked for, for millennia. For centuries it worked. Once it's no longer working, and why isn't it working? That, I mean, nursing is much better than a baby bottle, but if people aren't going to nurse, then the baby bottle is a boon for, for, the, for the children of the world. So yeah, the ideal method would have been, but it's not working, it's not happening. We're living in the 20th century. We're living where our homes are porous and uh, everything is going through it and the people are going out. So we have no choice but to create formal schools for women as well with curricula. Now comes the next step. How do we formulate the curricula? What do we do for the curricula? How should we should educate them? And we have to always bear in mind that our ultimate goal was a Beis Yaakov goal. 
And that's why by calling the school day Yaakov, you're saying we're still retaining, we're not trying to do it as a revolution of women's suffrage. Oh, the men have education, the women have to have it. That wasn't the point. That wasn't what Sarah Schneer was doing. She was faced with the problem of the Ridvas. She understood the problem of the Ridvas. She said, what are we going to do? So just like Yeshua ben Gamla 2,000 years ago, Sarah Schneer 100 years ago, Yeshua ben Gamla, Yeshua ben Gamla was more like 2,100 years ago, let's say. 2,100 years ago, Yeshua ben Gamla made the innovation. 2,000 years later, Sarah Schneer made hers. Both for the same kinds of reasons. These were the issues at hand, but it tells us what kind of curriculum, how to set it up. Part of it, though, is going to have to be with an eye to what the ideal was. It wasn't that she was trying to, ooh, we got to equalize men's education, women's education. If men have it, women have to have it. If men are taught this, women have to be taught that. If boys have this, girls have this, we're going to equalize it. I mean, the idea, whether it's co-education or the same curriculum, this wasn't any of the issues. She wasn't a revolutionary, a woman's uh, fighting for gender equality and things. Rather, what she was doing was responding to a clear and present problem. The problem that the Ritvaz outlines for us, which many of us aren't really aware of what the spiritual situation, what the Matzav was in Europe, at around the turn of the century, and, and somewhat before and somewhat after, and certainly between World War I and II. And given the, the matzav of the spiritual stature of the generation, and of all the problems that they were faced with between Haskola and the reform, as well as the allure of the European society and culture, these problems wrought devastation on the Jewish home. And as the Ridva says, it affected Jewish woman very greatly and from there it caused a deterioration of the general populace of the Jewish home and thereby affecting the children, the spouses, the siblings, the brothers and responding to this clear problem Sor Schneer went to the Gedolim amongst them the Chafetz Chaim and asked them that we should do something, some sort of a yes it's an innovative even some would say radical solution to a problem but, but there's no alternative and just as Yeshua ben Gamla of old innovated to have mandatory elementary school education for Jewish children Sarah Schneer had a similar idea for Jewish girls